In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear people of God, we've come again together to the Feast of the Transfiguration, that mountain pass marking the end of Epiphany and the first steps of a descent that will take us into the Lenten ways and eventually the way of the cross. It's good that we're here. There are few things as satisfying as taking a hilltop breather after a difficult hike. But when when we do catch our breath and look up, we, like Peter, James, and John, are met with an amazing and confounding sight, which immediately takes our breath away again. It's Jesus. We have just seen this Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths by Mary and Joseph. In about seven weeks, we will look on as another Joseph wraps his body in a clean linen shroud, two very tender moments from Scripture. But today's event isn't one of those. For between the swaddling cloths and the shroud, the God-man is robed in majesty. His clothes, Mark tells us, became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And the moment is one not of tenderness but terror. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified, and rightly so. Seeing dead people up and about and talking tends to do that. And then in a divine act that probably did very little to alleviate the disciples' fear, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. And then it's lights out, and we're left looking around with the disciples, astonished and bewildered. This passage may initially strike us as an unexpected culmination to the Epiphany season, a season in which we celebrate Christ's revelation to the whole world. For in this moment of revelation, the light is far too brilliant to see clearly by, and that whiteout gives way to a darker concealment. Blinding brightness becomes a blackening blur. And adding to this obscurity, We have Jesus' parting shot about the episode as the group makes their way down the mountain. Oh, and by the way, regarding this epiphany, don't tell anyone about that just yet. It's a command that seems to echo through our readings for today. Regarding Elijah's imminent departure, Elisha tells the sons of the prophets to keep quiet, keep quiet. And Paul speaks of a veiled gospel, claiming that the minds of the unbelievers have been blinded to keep them from seeing the light. Isn't this all the opposite of epiphany? No. In truth, the transfiguration passage is a perfect pivot point from epiphany in ordinary time into Lent. As the pastor theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer noted in his theological reflections on epiphany, written for pastors in the Confessing Church in January of 1940, quote, it makes good sense that the last pericope of the season of epiphany is the transfiguration of Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. Why is that? Bonhoeffer opens his reflections on Epiphany by commenting on the feast day's historical origins, observing that, quote, there's a strange indeterminacy that lies over the feast. Its origins are in the dark, end quote. For Bonhoeffer, this isn't just an observation about lack of knowledge surrounding the historical development of a liturgical practice. It serves as a fitting introduction to an important theme of the reflections, namely 
that the events celebrated on and after Epiphany all involve divine concealment as well as divine revelation. Regarding the star hanging above the manger, Bonhoeffer argues that it was, quote, not a sign that would have visibly announced the birth of the king of the Jews to the world. Herod did not see it, end quote. Regarding Christ's act of turning water into wine, he states, what is decisive is that this sign of the divine power of Jesus remains hidden from the guests, from the chief steward, and from everybody else except the disciples. And regarding the baptism of Jesus, he claims that it involves self-humiliation for the sake of sinners. Christ's self-humiliation, he notes elsewhere, entails putting on the likeness of sinful flesh, which conceals him from those without the eyes of faith. In a justifiably famous passage from Bonhoeffer's lectures, he notes that Christ, quote, comes among us as humans not in godly form, but rather incognito. As a beggar among beggars, an outcast among outcasts, he comes among sinners as one without sin, but also as a sinner among sinners, end quote. And it is in this scriptural and theological context that the more enigmatic aspects of our gospel passage for today begin to make good sense. For as with the star and the wedding and the baptism, in the transfiguration account, the glory of Jesus is hidden in his his humility and is perceived only in faith. That's Bonhoeffer again, and so is this. The content of the Feast of Epiphany is closely connected with the Christmas story, insofar as it involves the appearance of the one who had no form or majesty. With this, Bonhoeffer continues, Epiphany points to the next season in the church year, to the Passion. End quote. Yes, here on the mountain pass, at the threshold between the bright star of Epiphany and the black maw of the empty tomb, is the glory of the Lord a glory hidden in humility that is, as Bonhoeffer and our collect for today both suggest, perceived only by the grace of God. Let me put this another way. At these high crossroads, we see that the great glory of our faith intersects with and indeed does not come to us apart from Christ's humiliation on the cross. This is not a new point. In his Heidelberg Disputation, delivered 500 years ago this April, Luther argues that the one who claims to see and know God's glory apart from Scripture's revelation of the suffering and crucified Messiah, quote, does not deserve to be called a theologian. A theologian of glory, he writes in Thesis 21, prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly. In contrast to the works of these so-called theologians, Luther offers his theology of the cross, God is only known through his humiliated, through the humiliated person of Jesus Christ. He deserves to be called a theologian, Luther declares in Thesis 20, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. Writing about Luther's theology, Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, who I think is coming to Wheaton this April, so you should all go to the theology conference and see him and Marilyn Robinson, explains what the Reformation in general and Luther's theology of the cross in particular has to teach us about what Christianity ought to look like and not look like in the world. The Reformation, he said, 
pointed eloquently to human brokenness, the failure of reason and order. But it did so only to claim triumphantly that the church's very security lay in this failure, in the insecurity and unrootedness which drove it always back to its spring in the word made broken flesh. Against this self-sufficiency, and I would add glory of Christendom, he says, is set rightly and decisively the cross. I love that line. And what William says here is not only true about Christendom, rather all the ways that we try to be self-sufficient to arrive at glory apart from the humiliated Messiah will come to exactly nothing in the long run. Our path to glory runs right through his death and our death to self. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, Paul writes. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Let me drive these points home by riffing on Rowan for a moment. Against the glorification of any nation, including America or any political party, is set rightly and decisively the cross. Our kingdom is not of this world, and our political ambitions find direction from the one who wears the crown of thorns. God said, as Paul writes in today's epistle, let light shine out of darkness. Against the glorification of a strong border wall or a modernized nuclear arsenal is set rightly and decisively the cross. Our security is to be found in the one whose open hands receive the nails, the defenseless one who allowed himself to be mocked, stripped, pierced, and crushed. Let light shine out of darkness. Against the glorification of our workplaces and businesses, our promotable strengths, and our homes with their new 55-inch TVs is set rightly and decisively the cross. Our achievements, abilities, and possessions are gifts given to the one who came to his own people and was not received by them. Let light shine out of darkness. And against the glorification of our families and friendships and our ever-expanding social networks is set rightly and decisively the cross. Our relationships and connections only find their worth in the one who was betrayed by one, denied by another, condemned by us all, and forsaken by his father. Let light shine out of darkness. Back to Rowan, who concludes, quote, to Christians looking for a sign, an assurance, and again, I would add glory, we are offered only the sign of the Son of Man, God hidden in the death of Christ, end quote. Because the Lord is hidden in his humility and his humiliation, we may meet him in some of the strangest and lowliest of places. He tells us, I was, in, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He's also present with us in our suffering. This was the case for Britta and me last year during her chemotherapy treatment. On the very first day of her treatment, Britta was set to receive adriamycin, which is a bright red fluid nicknamed the Red Devil because it's so nasty. Because the drug itself is so deadly, the nurses wear these head-to-toe blue gowns that reminded me of hazmat suits. We were anxious, and adding to the anxiety we were feeling, there was some difficulty getting the first chemotherapy drug administered. So as we waited for the next drug, we opened Britta's Divine Hours prayer book to read through the midday prayers. And the verse that came to us that day was from Isaiah. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, 
Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Our experience that day doesn't really translate well in the retelling, but I can tell you that in reading about the waters of affliction, as Britta received those poisonous red waters, we both felt assured of the presence of the Lord. Of course, though God is always present in our sufferings, he doesn't always seem to be. He meets our suffering with silence, sometimes. We were recently reminded of that at Gosha Stiff's memorial service as Roy described the prolonged silence that Gosha faced during one of her bouts with cancer. Her response to God's silence was, Roy told us, simply obedience, to obey. This morning, I'm not going to try to offer an explanation for the Lord's silence in the midst of our suffering. What I simply want to affirm, along with Roy and Gosha, is that despite Christ's silence, he was present with Gosha in her suffering. The Lord, I think we have to say, was the ultimate source of her obedience during that difficult time. And he has revealed and is still revealing his glory to us through it. Let light shine out of darkness. This is the message of the transfiguration. And it's one of the through lines of our great story, running from the first words of creation to Christ's act of redemption. Now it's getting dark. We finally managed to catch our breath again, but the shadows are lengthening, so we better make our way down the mountain. Plus, I'm hungry. Could anybody, anybody, anybody else go for some pancakes? <laughs> After that, we've still got a long journey ahead of us. Our Lord has set his face towards Jerusalem to trade in his radiant robes for a clean linen shroud, and we must follow. May we be strengthened to suffer with him and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Amen.